Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like Tech Leader's favourite off-the-shelf service, providing high-quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're going to talk to the previous CTO of Okada Limited, where he and his team spearheaded the use of AI and ML and digital twins to model and then execute a successful business strategy. Paul is an incredibly interesting gentleman. So let's see how Paul thinks and what he's passionate about. Welcome to CTO Confessions, Paul. It's great to have you on board. Thank you very much for having me. That's brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Oh, well, it's it's been a journey. Um, I suppose, you know, I started uh, you know, my, my career originally having done physics at university, but went straight into the computer industry um, and... Uh, I've worked in in lots of different roles, you know, particularly around startups. Um, I've really tried to avoid working for large companies. Um, And, um, you know, I've done consulting. I've done done lots of software development. I I suppose I spent most of my career, you know, in the software industry, but but very much really at this interface of where where software meets hardware. So often, you know, real time kind of software controlling hardware, smart machines, you know, um, firmware, you know, uh, orchestration of smart machines and things like that. So, uh, and then more recently, you know, into robotics, and um, that's taken me, you know, to a number of different companies. Most recently, um, uh, I was at. Ocado, um for nearly 15 years um, and a good chunk of that I was uh, CTO um, and I, I left that role in November um, and now I'm I'm very much focused on on some of the uh, kind of government and industry advisory roles that um, I had I also work with a number of startups um, you know in an advisory capacity and I'm I suppose you know after 14 and a half years in a frying pan I, I i actively want to kind of pause before jumping into any other fires but there's a lot of very exciting kind of um, irons in the fire so to speak that we're working on to do with some really big visions around technology that i'm sure we'll get to brilliant the conversation excellent so in terms of um you kind of mentioned firmware i mean it's not not a a term I hear very often actually in the tech world, being a firmware engineer myself once, I was an embedded engineer. Um, is that so, was that an area that you programmed in and was involved in the kind of lower end? Yes, I, 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 I'm showing my age here, but I mean, when I started uh, uh, writing software, you know, uh, a lot of it was written in, uh, in Assembler. You wow. Know, and, um, uh, you know, I remember when, you know, C came along as a language, you know, and that seemed like a big step forward. And then obviously, you know, object oriented languages arrived on the scene like C++ and then Java and so forth. So it, I've sort of seen it from the uh, uh, from the ground up, so to speak. And, you know, many different generations of computers have come and gone uh, and the companies that built them uh, with them. So, mm. um but you know, some things never change. You know how you go about uh, building, you know, great 
software platforms, the, the tools may have changed and evolved over the years, but the principles of, you know, collaboration and software engineering and testing and, and you know, uh, design, you know, have, have stayed, you know, remarkably the same, you know, obviously, mm. though, you know, as I say, new methodologies have come along in the process. Brilliant. Um, I was going to say about the kind of embedded world uh, and what have you, and, and, and actually, I'm going to say, absolute respect for somebody that's done assembler you don't hear that very often either you know it takes quite a brain to kind of uh, you know loading registers uh, um unloading registers clearing registers flags and what have you so that's great do you, do you miss that at all well I, I don't know that i necessarily miss it but I, I i do think um it teaches you something about the underlying you know architecture and um you know, it's a bit like learning your tables versus using a calculator. You know, most of the time, you know, you'll probably never use it, but it's 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 great to have have that as a foundation. And certainly, you know, I think it 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 teaches you a lot about things like you know how to manage memory and how to write tight, um, you know, programs. Probably not as maintainable, obviously, as the ones yes. that are written, you know, yeah. in high level languages, but. Um, you know, and, and how to do that without the kind of tools, you know, I mean, when I first started work, you know, you, you used to, um, you know, submit your, your programs for, um, compilation, you know, and, and then they'd come back on a, a printout with, you know, all the compile errors and you didn't just kind of, you know, quickly fix a few things and, and compile it again, as you would now on a, you know, on a desktop, you, you spent a lot of time, you know, going through really trying to make sure you found all of the mistakes if you could, and yeah. then you'd resubmit it because it cost you know, a significant amount of money to, uh, and, and it, you know, this was a scarce resource. And, you know, nowadays, of course, you, you just, you know, that's unthinkable, you know, yeah, that's right. kind of, you just, Fix them and hit hit you know hit build again and and if it uh, you know if it if it fails well you know try again much lost you know try again yes, try uh, again but, but uh, so you know but I, I I definitely think where we've got to now is is infinitely preferable. That's right. I, th I like that idea of really checking your work to make sure it kind of has some level of quality before you give it a go. Because I, I know I used to just press the uh, uh, compile button and see see what happened. <laughs> hey, what's the worst that can happen? I get an error, you know. Um, so in terms of, yeah, coming back to your kind of LinkedIn, I was kind of curious on your LinkedIn, pausing for thought before making future plans. I mean, that's quite kind of um, uh, quite quite a confident decision to make to, to to pause you know from moving from a carder uh, most people jump from one career to another um i mean what's kind of driving that decision to to pause i suppose it's it's many things one you know it has been an intense period you know um uh, as as cto of a you know a, a very fast evolving um business that you know probably in the, in, in the olden days people used to think of as a retailer and obviously in fact it didn't take me more than about two or three weeks probably to work out that really it was a technology company when I joined but you know in those days probably most people if you'd stop them in the street if they'd even heard of Ocado they would have said oh it's a you're uh, that retailer with strangely colored vans aren't you yes well, you know but it, it's always been this technology company under the surface you know it's become a platform company and uh, and 
if you dig deeper, you'll find out that really, you know, it's an innovation factory. And, and I suppose much of the time there, uh, I spent, you know, initially leading the technology side, but then running the, the division that we created a couple of years ago there, which was around the sort of the, the further out research, the more speculative type um, research um, in this kind of spread bed of innovation. Because of mm -hmm. course, you know, you have to focus on the knitting, uh, but you also need to be thinking about the future um, and you need to kind of divide your investment and resources, you know, across those different kind of risk and time horizons. Mm. Um, and so that's, you know, that, that was intense. And I think, um, you know, I've always been very, very passionate about the role that technology can play, you know, in a journey towards building a, you know, smarter, more prosperous, more resilient and, and indeed more sustainable uh, UK. Um, and that's taken me, you know, onto a number of different, you know, advisory boards, but very much around a, a kind of a mix of, of technologies, you know, uh, really most of which were the technologies that we cooked with, you know, Decado. So, you know, data, you know, AI, robotics, um, synthetic environments and digital twins, you know, the internet of things, cloud, you know, and it's this cauldron of technologies um, that we cooked with. And indeed that now, you know, the, the, you know, the UK along with other countries are cooking with, and I suppose it's the recipe of for innovation, you know, mm. uh, for what is produced with that cauldron that's exciting. But why I call it a cauldron is because it's, it's not linear, you know, it's, you don't, know all of the kind of the ways in which the different ingredients will react together and much like you know when you cook food you know you put different ingredients uh, in and and the way in which the flavors combine mm. you know uh, maybe you could sit down and, and, and work it out you know scientifically but a, a lot of it is about you know experimentation and tr you know trial and error and and i suppose the technological equivalent of that is both what you can learn digitally, you know, in things like simulation, but also what you need to learn using other tools like living labs. And once again, you know, these are the kind of uh, tools that we used, you know, in Ocado, but now increasingly, you know, part of a much bigger vision, you know, for um, uh, the UK in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, how we drive um, innovation at a national level. Uh, using such tools. Wow, yeah, this is brilliant. Uh, on the uh, before the recording, we've mentioned around you know creating this powerful blend, you know, which is kind of you've touched on here about the kind of cooking analogy, um, and I love that because it's almost like you're just kind of putting things. You're not kind of just putting things together, but you're bringing things together to see what emerges from them. You know what what new understanding you have. Um, so have you got any kind of moments where you were doing this blending and you had suddenly had this kind of like uh, insight, you know, and you saw a way forward? Is there any kind of striking moments you remember? Well, I suppose what's of interest to me, particularly in that blend, is this sort of cyber-physical interconnect. It's about where digital and physical worlds come together. And and I think that's where the, the most exciting things happen. And, you know, at that intersection live a number of things. So smart machines live at that intersection. So whether you call them robots or smart machines, autonomous vehicles, drones, they're all examples of smart machines. 
you know, they have a very you know, powerful kind of software and often AI and machine learning component, but obviously they're also about things that move and you need to understand uh, both of those worlds. But, and I suppose one of the other things that lives at that intersection is this idea of digital twins, um, which mm. is one of those terms that is used a lot at the moment, but it means very different things to different people. Um, so, you know, maybe I should define what I mean by a digital sure. twin, which is, which is about taking data from some physical um, entity. Now, often people think that's something in the built environment like a machine or a piece of infrastructure or a motorway or, uh, you know, a power grid or whatever. Yes, that's one of, sort of example of that physical entity, but it can also be things, something like an institution. It could be national or local government. It could be our national health service. It could be, um, you know, our financial system. And then, you know, given the challenges we have ahead with climate change, it's also about modeling the natural environment too. Mm. So it's really taking data from those kinds of physical systems, if you like, feeding those data, typically via the cloud, into a simulation or a mathematical model of that physical entity. Um, and there, you know, you might ask questions, you might, you know, try out new kind of algorithms, you might, mm. uh, you know, do kind of what if type studies, you know, to uh, exp explore future opportunities or solve future challenges. And, and then what flows back into the physical entity is this mixture of optimizations and insights and and it's that conjoining of um, the physical and digital in both directions creating this kind of virtuous circle of data flowing one way and optimizations and insights flowing back the other way and that in my language is what creates a true digital twin and um and and so it's you could think of the digital twin in many ways as stitching together you know, these physical and digital worlds. And uh, and then, you know, things like artificial intelligence come in because, you know, in really complex systems or systems of systems, you know, the scale of the complexity that you're dealing with is, is beyond really what humans can uh, kind of get yes. their head around. And therefore you really start, you need tools to manage that, you know. I mean, if I think back to, you know, my days at Ocado when, you know, there might be 3,500 robots in just one warehouse and, you know, Ocado's on a journey to build, you know, 40 of those around uh, the world at the moment. Um, well, at last count, uh, I, you know, it may have, may have increased since uh, I left. But, <laughs> right. but the fact is, you know, that's a lot of robots and, you know, that's a huge amount of data uh, that you're feeding into, you know, digital twins. And that's completely beyond human scale. And the only way to make um, head and tail of it is really to uh, use, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence to manage that complexity. But the same would be true if you were, you know, building digital twins, you know, of, you know, our motorway networks, our rail networks, you know, mm. aspects of, uh, of, you know, climate. And obviously people like the Met Office have been doing this for years with very, very powerful computers, you know, and, and it, that kind of leads to a journey towards, you know, something called the National Digital Twin that, you know, I'm very passionate about and involved in uh, along with others. Um, and, you know, that could be really transformative, you know, um, for uh, this country. But even that's 
although it's a moonshot in itself, that is really just a stepping stone to something even bigger, which is the idea of taking it to a planetary scale, you know, building wow. a, a planetary digital twin, which, you know, you know, a number of different organizations around the world are starting to talk about. So, um, mm. you know, um, hopefully it will happen. Yeah, I love this. And in terms of kind of creating models, the kind of mathematical model or algorithm for a particular for a particular twin, uh, you've got the data, but then mm. the, the model needs to kind of react in in some way or behave in a particular way. I mean, is that kind of a, a, progr a program that um, is uh, estimated or is it something that is formed by the data? Because um, digital twins aren't something that I've particularly worked on myself. I've heard of the concept. So, uh, you know, at the heart of a digital twin is a simulation or an emulation. So it's a it's a it's a model, you know, as I say, of of whatever it is that you're um, uh, seeking to uh, gain insights into, and you know those models can be built in different ways. Um, you know, discrete event simulation is a very common way. Thinking back to 15 years ago or so, when I joined Ocado, the very first person I hired was to effectively start creating a new simulation team because I'd actually started my career building simulation models, um, you know, mostly in the defense sector, um, uh, which were incredibly secret at the time, but, you know, uh, I'm sure not now. But those, um, you know, that was about, you know, modeling, you know, the behavior of uh, aircraft and helicopters and submarines and things like that. Um, but, you know, the principles are the same. You, you know, you, you build models of the different elements and you connect them together into, more, into a more complex holistic model. And, um, you know, that's a sort of a step-by-step -step process and it's fed with data. Um, and sometimes that data could be coming in real time from, you know, real world systems. But, um, and uh, it's all about how you do uh, the verification and the validation, because of course, if the model isn't, you know, realistic, then uh, it's it's properly dangerous because you start believing what it says, yes. and, and that could be complete nonsense. So, you know, it can be a case of you know uh, nonsense in, nonsense out. So you you really do have to be quite methodical in terms of how you do that, and and that was the process that you know we went about you know building the simulation capability you know within Ocado that over the years became one of its deepest you know core competencies, and pretty wow. much anything that got built was modeled first you know of, of any uh, importance and um i i suppose where i come from now looking you know at a national scale is why why would you build anything from a new map piece of infrastructure to um uh you know a, a new motorway or a new kind of vehicle without building this and obviously you know lots of companies do you know lots of organizations involved in things like autonomous vehicles have made a very big investment in building these kind of complex simulation environments, which in many ways are a little bit like, you know, the kind of video games that, you know, um, our children uh, take for granted now, which are very sophisticated models, which often, you know, include physics models of how things move and, you know, um, what happens, you know, when you let off an explosion and, and you know, the, the impact of that and, um, you know, um, so it, it, you know these kinds of models are being used now in 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 you know for recreational purposes for 
immersive learning and training um, and, um, you know, both within organizations and scenario and planning and wargaming, you know, within the defense sector. And I suppose, you know, the, the big vision is about how you pull this together to create a, a sort of an immersive cyber physical environment uh, that can be used for, you know, innovation and ideation and design and testing and learning and education. And that's obviously very important when you're locked down in a pandemic, but actually yeah. it's it's important at other times too, because, um, you know, uh, we need to get as many smart, you know, brains you know, on solving some of these problems uh, like climate change as possible. And, and, you know, we need to do that without everybody having to necessarily fly around the place and, and get into the same uh, time-space coordinates. We need to be able to do that remotely. Mm. Um, and, uh, and we need new, better tools uh, to do that. Uh, and I think this pandemic has highlighted that. Yeah, I can imagine these uh, these kind of models and, and simulations, they uh, save potentially lots of money. I, I'm kind of curious, is there kind of some form of regression that you do on each one of these with known data, with known kind of outcomes to kind of make sure that they kind of still fit as you tweak them? Yes, I mean, you have to constantly, you know, compare uh, what the model says, you know, with, if you like, with reality. And, uh, and, and, and obviously, by capturing the data from a real system, you know, you can look back and do what's kind of called hindcasting, where you 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 model you know what you think would have happened in the past, and then you can compare it with reality. And if you can persuade yourself that your model is accurate, then then you can hopefully trust it to forecast you know into the future. Mm. Um, but it it it's a um, it, you know it's a process that requires a lot of discipline. At the moment, it's something that relatively few uh, companies have the skills and knowledge and and resources to do and you know part of the vision um is really to lower the barrier to adoption if you like make it easier uh, uh for 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 you know lots of companies you know uh, including you know startups and smes that otherwise perhaps couldn't afford to do it mm. to to build you know these these models and 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 use them to take cost and risk out to accelerate innovation you know you you can obviously learn faster uh, mm. and and safer in a digital environment than you can going off and building you know a new kind of robot or whatever you know and then finding out that actually you built it with the wrong performance um yes capabilities so you, you want to learn as much digitally as possible but you can only go so far and that's when you need to start using living labs and this is where you do Kind of, you put your, you know, your smart machine or your product out into a, you know, an environment that is realistic in terms of the real world, but is more constrained initially. Mm -hmm. And you can then do this kind of learning by doing, where you put it through its paces. You can bring people into the loop because often, you know, you want to model things like, you know, how they're going to react and, you know, adoption and ethics and these are the kind of things you can't really do in. In synthetic environments yet so so learning by doing and then over time as you get more confidence you relax the constraints and make a kind of smooth transition from the living lab out into the real world 
love that. This is fascinating. And, and I'm really surprised about Ocada because I really did think that was just a grocery company, you know, delivering food to people. But but it's fascinating what, what's been created here, this um, innovation machine, I guess, you know. Um, and it kind of takes us back to that kind of full circle, what we were talking about earlier on around, you know, the old days where you had to kind of um, – yeah, write your programs and then give them to somebody and then see what happened. Whereas now you'll be able to kind of compile this again and again and again and see what, what the outcomes of the model are, hence de-risking, uh, which is really important to many organisations out there. Um, and, and, and just on that, I mean, there's a really a real key, really key part of that is that these models include kind of random, um, you know, starting conditions, you know, which mean that if you can run the model you know, a hundred times and you'll get slightly different results. And mm. that's, that's what's called, you know, Monte Carlo simulation. That's where you do run it, you know, hundreds of times potentially. And, and those results carve out a kind of an envelope. And so what you do is you build up a statistical kind of distribution of results where you can say, you know, you know, this is, you know, what we expect as the kind of the mean, you know, this is the first standard deviation mm. row. And, and you build confidence limits for what where you think, because you're not going to, in a really complex system, you're not going to predict, you know, uh, the, the absolute exact, you know, um, uh, movement of every single part in there, you know, little tiny variations in friction and timing. And, you know, especially when people are involved and, you know, people behave very, you know, slightly differently, um, you know, even if they're performing the same task, you mm. know, time, time again. So it, you need to um, recognize that. And, and, and that's what sort of this kind of Monte Carlo approach does. Mm. And, um, and that is also where cloud comes in, because if you're going to run a model, you know, hundreds of times, you know, and you potentially want to run it, you know, in parallel, so you get your results quickly, you know, you don't necessarily want to stand up internally the infrastructure to mm. do that. And, you know, the advent of cloud that came along certainly on this journey uh, whilst we were on it, you know, was uh, incredibly powerful because you could spin up these different instances of the model, get the results and then shut them down again. You know, uh, Brilliant. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's almost like a convergence of technologies that have brought about the right circumstances, you know. It's absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, the the series on uh, Netflix, uh, Black Mirror. Yes, yes, absolutely. It kind of fits one of the stories in that. Yes, I, I you know, like everything, you know, there are, um, you know, good uh, applications of technology in the disparaging <laughs> yeah. uh, applications, yeah. and and you know, if you're going to build these kind of models, you know, at a at a at a national scale, particularly, you know things like security, you know, um, and trust and indeed even ethics uh, and privacy are going to be really important in that because, um, mm. uh, yeah, you, 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 if, you're, if you're building a, a highly accurate model, you know, of a country, you know, that could be misused. So yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, you've got to tackle those, um, those kind of challenges head on. 
And the thing that's surprising for me is the fact that the government is actually working with it. So it's great to hear that you're kind of uh, working with the government to kind of create this kind of simulation. And and it, as you describe it getting bigger and bigger and taking it to kind of like the global level, it reminds me of the Gaia hypothesis, um, which is, you know, seeing the Earth as a living a system in its own right, you know. I mean, is that the kind of uh, ultimate goal to kind of be able to simulate Gaia's behaviour, if you want to call it that? Well, I, yes, I think it's about, you know, modelling more and more uh, parts of um, the natural environment. And obviously we've been doing that for things like weather and earthquakes mm. and, you know, um, you know, tidal flows and, and yeah. uh, uh, you know, those kind of systems, you know, for many years now. Um, but it's also about modelling, you know, our man-made systems so that we can understand the impact and start to you know, optimize, if you like, those, whether that be in terms of, you know, energy and carbon or pollution mm. or whatever. And, and, you know, that's a, that's obviously, you know, if you're going to do it at that kind of scale, that's a, that's a, would have to be a massively collaborative mm. uh, venture across, you know, across many different com- countries, because, you know, obviously climate is not something that respects um, uh, <laughs> country boundaries. And no, therefore, that's right. And therefore, you know, um, hopefully other countries will be embarking, you know, uh, on this journey, uh, uh, you know, at a national level, and then we can start stitching them together. But um, the great thing is, although it sounds like a massive endeavor, and indeed it is, it's not like you have to get to the end before you get benefits. You know, as you start connecting digital twins, you start to get benefits. So for example, you know, you could model, first of all, you know, an aircraft in terms of its engines and its control surfaces and, um, the you know the control systems and the airframe and so forth and now you've got a bit a model of an aircraft and then you might want to start modeling you know airports and mm. you know airlines and customer behavior and and air traffic control systems and now you've built a you know a model of of the aviation industry but then you might think oh yes but we need to model you know energy and we need to model other transport systems like yeah you know roads and railways and seaports and you know that's a you know an incremental journey but along that journey you know you get huge kind of um combinatorial benefits from from gluing together these digital twins and the challenge is that you know to to do that stitching together of these twins which will have been built in many cases with different technologies by different companies at different or different organizations at different levels of fidelity for different purposes you need a new kind of smart glue to do that. Um, And uh, that smart glue um, is often referred to as the digital commons um, uh, in this this plan. And and it's really important that everybody is using the same recipe for that glue, because Mm. obviously you want to be able to, you don't want this to be some, in fact, you know, some huge kind of centrally controlled, massive IT project. We know what happens with those. This is about <laughs> making, allowing everybody to build their own parts for their own purposes. Yeah. But hopefully with the same kind of standards, the same smart glue, the same ontologies, um, same interfaces. And then over time, you can start combining them uh, uh, and, and, and assemble this, um, this national digital twin. But it, you know, it's a, there's a lot of talk about moonshots at the moment, and obviously it's great mm-hmm. to hear that we've created uh, Aria um, as a as a part of our innovation um, 
toolkit, if you like. Um, and you know, that's about you know moonshots as well as other kinds of um, speculative, more speculative research. And and I'm I'm very excited about that. And and what I've been describing is definitely one example of such a moonshot. Mm. Uh, but we really do have to think big here because we've got some very big problems ahead of us. I've you know I've often said that this pandemic has just been a warm-up act quite frankly for what comes next and hopefully we will learn some of the lessons you know from this uh, pandemic you know the power of data the power of models the need for better tools for innovation and learning you know remotely um and you know we're going to need all of those and more you know mm -hmm. uh, to tackle what lies ahead wow you've kind of mentioned um education as well yeah in previous conversations kind of modeling how how we teach our children better you know and and the kind of outcomes of that i find that quite fascinating because um personally thinking you know i think education is uh is a is sometimes a bit of a missed opportunity in terms of creating the kind of national direction and and and, and growth um i mean is this an area that you're looking at with uh with the work that you're doing uh to to improve education well, not directly. I mean, I'm very passionate about this. I, you know, I both, you know, in the past as an employer, as a father, as a citizen. Uh, why? Well, because um, I suppose several reasons. Firstly, you know, if you work in the technology industry and you're involved in, if you like, helping to construct this future, smarter, more automated world, you know, whether that be with artificial intelligence or robotics or digital twins or whatever, you know, there's a kind of duty of care there, you know, mm. because there will be unintended consequences, you know, of these technologies. Um, and people sometimes say, oh, well, you know, maybe we should hit the pause button. Maybe, you know, we should go a bit slower. But the answer is no. Mm. In my view, we've got to embrace them. We've got to uh, um, use them to help, you know, um, be more efficient, be more sustainable, be more resilient, you know, um, allow people to, you know, work safer and so far, so forth. And, you know, so you can't play kind of technological King Canute here. And because <laughs> the, the technological tide is coming in fast around the world and the UK can't afford to be left behind, you know, this is absolutely core to our future uh, sustainable um, and defensible competitive advantage. So we have to embrace these technologies but the the one kind of insurance uh, uh, policy that we have about some of those unintended, unintended consequences is education, in my view. Mm. You know, we've 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 got to prepare the next generation for this smarter and more automated world that they will inherit. Uh, you know, we've got to democratize um, innovation. We've got to make it something that many more people feel they can be part of. You know, we've got to increase the diversity of the talent uh, involved in, in, in building these kind of tools. Um, but also, it's not just about those who are going to be involved in constructing, you know, um, these systems. It, it's really about the fact that um, in the future, uh, these, these systems, if we're successful, will affect, you know, how people spend their time and, yeah. and what, you know, what as humans, you know, we do in, in the workplace and indeed, you know, in, in, in our, in our non-work lives. And, um, and there's going to be a shift, you know, from, um, what is currently, 
uh, you know, a very knowledge-based education system uh, to one that I believe very firmly, as do a number of others, one that needs to be much more focused on the kind of the meta skills and the soft skills which differentiate us, you know, not only from machines now, but quite frankly, from machines for the foreseeable future, mm. you know, and, you know, whether that be things like collaboration and design thinking and intersectional thinking and creativity and, uh, you know, mind mapping and all these kind of skills, um, you know, the, the, the soft kind of EQ skills, um, which um, are, are going to be so important uh, and which, you know, machines, you know, are going to struggle to emulate human yes. capabilities, you know, for a very long time. And, and I think um, it's about, you know, if you think back to, you know, when I was young, you know, and I was doing homework, I would, you know, reach for the Encyclopedia Botanica off the shelf, you know, and that was the source of kind of, you know, not that was knowledge at your fingertips when it came to sort of science and how things worked. Mm. Well, you know, uh, now, of course, you know, it's, it's a few clicks away on a browser. Well, you know, in the same way that the, you know, uh, the internet and the World Wide Web, you know, has disrupted, you know, uh, the encyclopedia, we need to make sure that the kind of technologies we're cooking with, you know, um, uh, you know, don't, you know, disrupt the skills that we teach, are teaching, you know, um, the next generation. And um, so, you know, you have to see this as a, I believe, as a kind of a holistic um, process. You need to focus on the technology, you need to focus on the the, the social science side of it in terms of you know the impact it will have and trust and ethics and privacy and 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 so forth we've talked about and you need to think about the pipeline that feeds it mm. you know and that's where you know education comes in but also you know these kind of technologies these kind of environments um, offer amazing opportunities for lifelong learning and reskilling you know and uh, you know not in terms of sort of, you know, reading facts, and, um, you know, um, off a, out of a, a manual or indeed off a screen, but immersive type learning, you know, once again, the kind of things, the kind of environments that you would take for granted playing video games, but, but those same kind of environments, but really which are about, you know, training and, and being able to reproduce, you know, a bit like a flight simulator, you know, for someone who's training to be a pilot, but imagine mm. that same kind of capability for all sorts of different skills. And one of the great things about those kind of virtual environments is they can be accessed by anybody from anywhere. Mm. So, you know, in terms of the whole kind of leveling up diversity and inclusion perspective, they are a great leveler because, you know, it's no longer about how far you might be away from, you know, a, a particular university or a particular lab or, um, you know, whatever. And it's, it's about these, these kinds of um, immersive environments really being, you know, available on demand um, whenever you need them from wherever you need them. Love that. Yeah, I love the idea of this fully globally democratising the ability to kind of learn, uh, you know, with the advent of the internet uh, becoming more available in all nations and then having a pretty simple kind of machine to be able to access it. And I love the idea also of uh, learning being very different, experiential learning. Uh, I was just imagining there, I me mean, playing my Xbox, you know, I love playing Xbox and uh, it's so interactive and so immersive that, um, 
the, the experience of it is very memorable. You know, it's it mm -hmm. uh, really kind of taps into the kind of visual centers of the brain and kind of uh, sticks. Uh, so the speed at which you learn as well would be would be more kind of uh, impactful. Um, yeah, I can't wait for this. Well, I, you know, but also it's not just about learning on your own. You know, it's about yes. being able to, you know, um, be in these kind of virtual worlds. Um, you know, with other people and interact with them and you know simulate you know how teams behave and um uh, and, and and so forth so um you know i i think these kinds of environments are going to touch many different parts of our lives they're going to say touch mm -hmm. education they're going to touch uh, how we work how we ideate but also you know uh, how they're going to affect things like um you know recreation and um they're gonna allow you know um you know more kind of diverse uh interaction you know uh with uh with others which you know is in you know really important especially since we're all going to have to fly around the place you know less in the future um and you know it but it isn't just about the digital once again it's about the physical it's about things like you know haptics being able to feel, if you like, uh, what some aspect of this uh, virtual world, you know, feels wow. like, you know, um, teleoperation, being able to interact with, you know, smart machines, you know, in these worlds. Um, and, you know, this is a, this is a very big topic, because, you know, mm. we, we, we think about these worlds as replicating what we have in our real world. But, Actually, it's much more than that. We can create any number of these different kinds of virtual environments, uh, and they might, you know, have very different characteristics. They might, um, uh, you know, I remember, you know, people often used to say to me, you know, when they learned that I was a car, they said, oh, well, you're going to build a kind of a, a, a VR, you know, uh, supermarket so I can go through and do that. And I'd say, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to... <laughs> build a replica of of something that is probably not a terribly efficient way yeah. of doing your shopping why don't you perhaps create very different kinds of immersive virtual worlds that actually um you know either are personalized to the way that you like to shop or mm. that let you shop faster or you know uh, that let you shop collaboratively with other people and things like that so so you know this is you know this is going to touch many, many different parts of our lives, I'm sure, going forward. Yeah, I can just imagine the different iterations and different inventions of shopping uh, as, as you create these new kind of virtual worlds. <clears throat> I'm kind of seeing mine, actually, so I don't kind of wander around looking for the uh, for the chocolate biscuits, you know. I know, you know, it's there. It's there where I need them, right, right in front of me. Um, it, it also, this whole kind of concept seems to be coming full circle back around. It's becoming more human-centric. Uh, you kind of mentioned a lot of the soft skills, the kind of uh, the, the the very human type of ways of being uh, are, are becoming to the fore. Anyway, it's not about knowledge; it's about how you are, you know, and how you how you interact. And and also, there's a book here that I was kind of looking for on my shelf. Think again by Adam Grant. You know, it's the speed at which we rethink. You know, as the world changes, yeah. it's the speed at which we can respond to that. Um, uh, so that's a new skill set as well. And, and and I think you know. If we want an analogy for this, you know, the the internet and the World Wide Web is a 
is a good example. You know, um, it was the the vision of you know uh, Tim Berners Lee. You know, deciding that actually if he could get persuade people to connect their servers to this uh, uh, vision of his, you know, we could you know do some extraordinary things into you know on this kind of web. You know, and and um, interact with you know data and knowledge you know in in new ways um but it was a it was a leap of faith you know and it required him to go around persuading people you know to do that well that's kind of where we are here i think uh, but rather than just logging on to the world wide web you'd be logging into this kind of cyber physical you know environment in, mm. you know in, in in order to collaborate and learn and and interact with others and you know, we have to understand, just like with the, you know, the World Wide Web, I'm sure it wasn't predicted exactly what would happen in a pandemic, you know, many years down the road. Well, similarly, we're not going to be able to predict all the first order, let alone the second and third order um, effects. And, you know, although we've kind of worked our way up to a national and a planetary level discussion in this, it's really important to also take it back down again and say that, you know, these kinds of tools you know, uh, could be absolutely transformative, you know, for uh, businesses of all sizes, you know, mm. and um, uh, say we've got to lower the kind of uh, the access and adoption barrier. We've got to make it so that, you know, um, uh, it's a commodity, if you like, um, mm. available to all, um, you know, in the same way that, you know, access to the, you know, the internet is, you know, for businesses at least, um, uh, is 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 widely available and um and indeed you know that challenge of how we make sure that you know broadband and and uh, 4g slash 5g access you know becomes you know a commodity that all of our citizens you know have access to is is going to be so crucial because otherwise you know we're not going to be able to build systems smart systems for online mm. government and and you know um, business all this kind of stuff we've been talking about because only some people will be able to access them so we've got to solve that problem too which is mm. you know ubiquitous access you know affordable access uh, wherever you live um and uh you know we've seen that once again you know in terms of the challenges of that in terms of homeschooling in this pandemic so that's a that's another important challenge um for us to, to deal with but if we're successful with that um and of course there are skills that go with that then i think you know we can start building this kind of smart cyber physical fabric on top of that um and um uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm optimistic about that future yeah i, I think i am so i can see this as uh as uh, it's more a case of when you know not uh, not if it's when uh, when this will come about um so kind of coming to yourself um Paul, you know, in terms of your leadership, what kind of leader, you know, in this kind of space, what kind of leadership style works? How do you lead these kind of projects? Oh, well, it obviously depends, you know, who you're leading and what you're doing. And I don't think there's one style. I think leadership is a bit like a toolkit where you have to take different tools out of your kit bag, you know, for different situations. And, um, I suppose my overriding experience of leading, you know, very bright, talented, creative, you know, engineers, software and hardware is that, you know, uh, 
you you have to lead both you know from the front you have to lead by example you have to um, be technically in touch and be able to understand um, what it is you're asking them to do you undoubtedly cannot uh, maintain um, you know that kind of knowledge base across the full breadth and so you you obviously have to be able to trust you know them um, mm. and but still you have to really make sure that you're sufficiently technically in touch to be able to ask the right questions and and make the hard decisions when you're called upon to do that um, you know you have to be able to um, ideate and communicate you know the vision um, uh, for where it is you're going um, you know the technological side you know of of you know, building highly successful, you know, platforms and products is challenging. But the people side, I think, is even more challenging and arguably even more leveraged. You know, hmm. it's an art form, you know, and if, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But it's not, <laughs> you know, yeah. and and what works for one culture and one organization uh, with its history won't necessarily work for another. You know, these these kinds of recipes are 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 not necessarily transferable, which is why when people sometimes say, oh, you know, can you talk about, you know, what you think is the, the right way to go about successful, you know, innovation, you know, the first thing I would always say is is a health warning, which is to say, you know, I, I can't possibly know what would work, you mm. know, for your business and your culture and your people. I think you can look out into the outside world, you know, for ingredients, but you've got to come up with your own recipe for how you combine them, uh, which works for you. And um, and so I think, um, uh, you know, lead, that's what makes this kind of leadership, you know, of the of the of this kind of innovation, you know, very kind of non-linear. It's mm -hmm. often very messy, you know. Um, you know that, that adage of it, you know. Um, darkest just before the dawn which i think is not true actually but but you know it's it's said you know often you know things look at their most crazy most messy you really are thinking oh my goodness you know should i pull the plug <laughs> and of course you know sometimes you should but sometimes you just have to hang in there and um i i i would like liken it a little bit to a quantum computer you know there is this kind of fuzzy state that you're in, in in innovation and then eventually you know hopefully it collapses down uh, from this fuzzy state to this kind of low energy state where where you know clarity uh, emerges and um and you have to kind of stay in there and and trust the process and um and and that requires yeah you have to get comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty mm. you know and um some people find that you know easier you know than others and so um but i think most of all it's really about um enabling the people that work for you um to do you know extraordinary things they could never dream they could do and mm. and part of that is about creating the container if you like in which they do that it's about you know have um, having their back, you know, uh, you know, when they take risks, it's about, you know, um, obviously encouraging them. It's about having faith in them and providing support. 
but also you know there are times when you do have to step in and you have to go you know what guys actually we've been we've really given this you know we go but actually i think it's time to call a call it a day you know mm. and and uh something has to be killed off or or, or sidelined or whatever mm. um and um it's fascinating i mean i think um you know yeah. leading and managing you know as a very bright talented people is a real is a is a is a privilege um mm. and um they have to trust you and you have to trust them um and um you know it is it is way more differentiating than the technology is i would say uh, sure. when, you, when you when you when you have the privilege of sitting you know in a room with uh, uh that kind of a team and they're sparking off one another and you know the ideas are flowing you know you, you know it's an, it's a it's a wondrous thing to watch you know it is like a form of alchemy you know <laughs> it's uh it it's you know things are reacting with one another in unpredictable ways and 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 that's what leads to you know coming up with ideas that are radically different from what you know uh, others would and and um which is why also things like you know intersectional thinking is so important encouraging people to go off and build networks of people who can feed and disrupt their thinking in unusual ways because if you just look in you know if you look in the same places that other com- companies do you know whatever in your sector you'll probably come up with the same old ideas that other people That's do right. so you've got to go off and steal good ideas from unusual places and um uh, sometimes that can seem a bit crazy you know mm-hmm. it is a leap of faith but once you've done it enough times you trust the fact that it's not you know that it is time well spent that it's not a waste of time and that um out of that kind of networking and and uh listening to people and um you know you 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 know extraordinary new ideas will emerge um, yeah and um yeah so i think um uh, yeah i would describe that kind of leadership as i say as as a form of kind of um alchemical process yeah and you to kind of achieve results in this area you kind of mentioned trust it's almost like a sea of trust not only between the team but also uh you know the, the teams that you're leading but also from the business perspective because you've got these kind of investors people are pumping probably large amounts of money to kind of fund these projects which don't really have a fixed output or an outcome it, this there's an expectation there will be one I mean, how do you manage that side of things? Because I can imagine business people kind of get quite kind of uh, uh, keep pointing at their Excel sheets going, the numbers, the numbers, you know? Well, that's why it has to be, you know, a, a managed kind of spread bet, um, a spread bet across different, you know, risk, um, at time and technology horizons. So, you know, you can't put all of your kind of eggs in one basket. You absolutely... you know you have to focus you know on your core knitting you know what it is that's building you know the value uh, for you know for today and the near future um mm. you've got to then do kind of business sponsored research projects um and and then you've got to find a way to look out beyond that and you know one way to do that is to put those different kind of um uh parts of that kind of spread bet if you like into different compartments right uh and 
you know, they, those different compartments might require different ways of working, different skill sets, different tools. Uh, they might have different cultures and values. Um, and, but they're not kind of waterproof compartments because across those compartments flow, you know, ideas and insights and, as I say, you know, um, learnings and so forth. So it's a kind of, there's a porous membrane, but, you know, semi-porous membrane between the compartments. But they, what they do do is they help you kind of make sure that, you know, you can allocate as that kind of investment and risk, you know, in a managed way, you know, right. across that. And, you know, uh, you that's, that's obviously important because, you know, many of the more speculative things might not come off, but the ones that do, could be completely game changing, you know? And mm. so uh, it's a portfolio, you know, and you're managing that portfolio and, 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 you know, outcomes flow down or around those different compartments. So, mm. you know, the, the, the people who are off doing the more kind of speculative stuff, they not, may not be the right kind of people that you'd want building production systems. They, <laughs> need, they, might, be, they might be building, you know, their kind of prototypes and their experiments. With very different tools to the ones you'd want, you know, live, you know, mm. in a uh, in a business, and so, you know, as the, you know, the results of those, you know, uh, experiments and innovations uh, hit the boundary, you know, you need stage gates to kind of manage the process by which they they then hop across, you know, and they have to, you want to make sure that at that point, you know, you you hand over if you like, to, to different people, to different teams, perhaps, you know, that may end up re-implementing what it is that's, you know, that's yeah. been handed to them, you know, with different tools, but but now for a different mission, you know, uh, it's yeah. to take the next kind of moving up the kind of, you know, the TRL levels that, you know, yeah. have to talk about technology readiness levels and, and but it's, um, yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a process and it's also an, you know, it's a it's a non-linear one. You can't, mm. um, you know, you can't necessarily, um, uh, you know, predict the return on investment of yes. some of the things that you'll be working at the more at the more speculative end. But then, of course, as they move through that process, hopefully, they become yeah know, more and more kind of certain and tangible, and you can start now, you know, um, uh, predicting, yeah. you know you know, what the outcomes would be if you put them live. Wonderful. Yeah, I like this kind of idea of them solidifying and becoming uh, more realistic or or seeing the possibility uh, for their use. Um, <clears throat> so coming on to kind of the organisations, and obviously you're not working for an organisation, as mentioned earlier on, um, but it, I'm kind of quite curious as, as you, when you were a tech leader and when you become to be a tech leader again, maybe, I don't know, who knows, um, what's, what's the kind of things that used to keep you up at night or will keep you up at night when you're leading in that kind of space? Um, well, I, I, I think, you know, the vision is, is hugely important. Um, um, I, I think you, I've talked about how you have to kind of manage this kind of the non-linearity of this process and the messiness and the uncertainty and, you know, how you make people, you know, comfortable uh, with that. Um, uh, I, you know, you always have your current, you know, challenges that you're, you're, you know, you're facing. But I, I'm very keen on the idea of sort of looking at, 
you know, what the you know what a mathematician would say the first or the second derivative, you know, would be. So, you know, in non-mathematical terms, you know, it's not just about the velocity; it's about the acceleration or the rate of acceleration. Even mm. um, what are going to be, you know, what are the problems that sit behind the problems that you're working on now? Because in many ways, you know, especially from a point of view of sort of scalability and resilience by you know by design you often have to be spending some of your time working on those second and third order challenges to make sure that you know once you solve the first order ones that you, that you don't immediately hit these other ones because the ones behind them may be even more difficult to solve so mm. you know coming back to sort of concrete examples it's not just about you know robots automating processes it's potentially about the robots that build and maintain the robots. It's the robots that build the factories that, that in which the robots are assembled. You know, those are that's about thinking about the second order, third order kind of um, challenges to solve in terms of things like scalability. Um, and uh, and so I I think you know thinking about those those as I say second and third order problems is is important. I think. Um, you know, and there's a, there's obviously a challenge of of how you take people with you, you know, on that journey. You know, how do you how do you get people to see what they can't see, you know, or indeed mm. even to to understand that there are things that they can't see. You know, I mean, this is yes. also which takes us into the whole area of the kind of you know Christian's innov you know, innovators dilemma, which is just a fact. You know, it is an unescapable fact. However creative and disruptive your organization is you know um all organizations are on a death spiral all organizations as they get bigger you know um the treacle gets thicker um <laughs> uh, the the antibodies as i put it get stronger you know and you have to put structures in place to kind of to help you see the things that you can't see to help you to help inoculate your your organization against those antibodies and you know the the challenge there is you know when you're creating perhaps these different compartments that i referred to earlier in some cases they they need to have a degree of separation from the mothership mm -hmm. um, and the challenge is how do you get them far enough away that they're not kind of killed off by the antibodies in the mothership but not <laughs> so far away that you get kind of organ rejection you know and and <laughs> right. where people just think oh well, why are they bothering to do that stuff so so that's a that's a difficult balancing act uh, to get right and you know many organizations grapple with that um and um uh and that's why also i think certainly you know in terms of the role that i i had in the last couple of years at Ocado, which was you know how you focus on that self-disruption and reinvention how do you uh, how do you think about, you know, um, uh, the, the future kind of business opportunities beyond the ones that you're currently working on? Um, because in a way, that's one of the ways in which you you deal with this kind of death spiral, you know, mm. where, you know, you always need to be finding, you know, the future ways that you will spread your DNA, so to speak. Um, <laughs> um, and um, because it's, you know, as organizations, as I say, as organizations mature and grow up and, you know, it's it's inevitable that maybe things that um, uh, were once, you know, um, 
thinkable start to become, unthinkable risks that would have been taken, you know, people shy away from, you know, people you might have hired, you know, just seem a little bit too risky. You know, this is true of really, this is just part of the journey of, you know, of going from a startup, you know, to a mature organization. And and that's necessary in many ways because, yeah. you know, you need to be able to deal with scale. You need, you know, uh, you need to have dependability. You need to know that you're not, you know, uh, that your systems are going to stay up and you're not going to let your customers down and so forth. So, you know, a degree of healthy bureaucracy is necessary, which is then why what you have to do is, whilst that mothership is focusing on that stuff, find ways to, you know, to explore um, the, the future, um, you know, outside of that. Yes, um, that kind of operational vehicle. That's right. In fact, um, as mentioned before, we we've had a, a talk from uh, some uh, people around structural tensions within organisations um, by Jardina London and right. Sally, and 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 that was that's quite interesting to see how, where you need to adjust the organisation to. But I also like this idea of of, of uh, degrees of separation. You know, not too much, not mm. too little, and. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's a really powerful concept of getting that balance right uh, for companies. And I guess, um, yeah, sorry. I was just going to mention that, you know, there's implications on that journey, obviously, for the individuals, because people who are right, you know, at maybe the early stages aren't necessarily the obviously the right yeah. people. For, and, and I think understanding that, you know, you, you need different people for different parts of that journey and that, you know, potentially people, you know, will either reach their sell-by dates or or have to accept that it's time for them to hand over and that mm. for other people to to take things on to the next stage. And um, and that's just a natural, you know, evolutionary process. And um, I think that requires also, you know, a degree of sort of humility and self-awareness. You need to know where your strengths are. You need to know, you know, what you're good at. You need to, if you're a leader, hopefully you surround yourself with people who compliment you and polyfill the gaps and, and can do the things that you're not so good at. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that requires, you know, as I say, some, some self-awareness and some honesty because, you know, very few people, you know, can excel at everything. You yes. Know? And, and, uh, and, but also not everybody enjoys you know, doing everything. And I think, you're always going to be, you know, more successful if you're doing something that you love. And so, so working out what it is that you really enjoy doing and, and hopefully mm. the things that you enjoy doing less, you can find other people who enjoy those, you know, more and wouldn't like to do the things you do. So you, you know, you, that's part of, I think, building, you know, a strong kind of leadership and senior management team within, you know, any, any business and, and, you know, actively managing, you know, the culture, doing what I would call the cultural gardening, you know, um, you have to, that's an active process. Otherwise, if you just take your hands off the wheel, you know, the weeds will start to grow and, and you'll wake up one day and go, well, crikey, this isn't the business that I joined. And you've got to, mm. you've got to manage that process. And it isn't about keeping everything still, you know, you're going to be planting new beds, you're going to be changing the the, the plants in the existing <laughs> beds you're going to be taking account of the fact that you know there may be new you know threats coming along in terms of changes in weather patterns or whatever and you're going to have to, you know so it, it's an active process of managing that evolving culture which uh will inevitably you know change as an organization matures and uh and it's up to the leadership team you know to do that 
um, yeah, uh, in, you know, and and work out also when you need to change gardeners. Yeah, I love it. I love these anal- analogies. Uh, they're great, and and it also speaks to kind of the cross function cross functionality of teams. But it's another dimension because as the project evolves, uh, you need a different cross function and a different set of skill sets. So, for example, I mean, I, I think I would be uh, uh, really good at the kind of uh, immersive end, you know, where uh, very non-linear, coming up with ideas, trying things out, uh, and there's people that would then uh, that I know that are really good at just taking. They don't want to think about it too much. They just want to make it happen, you know. So that's uh, that's great. Um, so as we kind of come towards the end of our time, Paul, um, I want to ask you um, to try and get a kind of peek into who you are and what kind of things you read and what kind of rocks your boat. Um, so what kind of books? would you kind of recommend around this um, that you've read and thought were game changers in your kind of reading library? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, you know, over the years, um, I mean, I'll be absolutely honest and say I'm, I'm, I'm probably, you know, I'm, I'm not a, hugely avid reader um i suppose i like to consume you know information you know in 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 other ways and it tends to be in sort of smaller pieces but you know i mean over the years you know lots of books around you know strategy and innovation um um you know i love i remember many years ago being fascinated when i first came across the whole concept of you know core competencies and and you know the kind of the assets that you assemble you know within um, an organization and and as i say vision and strategy you know fascinate me and i think more recently i mean a couple of books um that stick out um you know i there's a book called loon shots which is around you know how do you you know manage and enable i think they say crazy people to do extraordinary things and i and i think that's a um, uh, I think that's a great book. Um, there's another one, um, what's it called? Um, what you do is who you are, um, mm. by Horowitz, which once again, you know, um, is, is, is a really interesting book around sort of, um, you know, uh, business strategy. Um, you know, obviously there are some absolute classics over the time, like, you know, the lean startup and things like that. You know, I, I, I would find it difficult to pick out, you know, uh, uh, many more specific examples I think it's you know um, often it's not about reading them cover to cover for me it's dipping in yes um, and 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 taking bits out and maybe reading you know uh, abstracts or whatever and seeing whether you know they resonate with you um, or picking out particular you know chapters um, and uh, Mm. um, but now of course you know, there are so many other ways in which we can consume, you know, knowledge and and wisdom, you know, um, in terms of, you know, videos and, um, you know, articles and papers and things like that, you know, mm. uh, on the web. So um, it's, uh, yeah, uh, but it is important to keep, you know, it's important to keep in touch. Um, uh, but also some of that is around the direct interaction with the people that you put into your kind of your your network um, yeah. um and 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 hopefully make sure those are people who will challenge your thinking you know rather than just create an echo chamber you know that yes. with you and and uh um including you know from very you know as i said very diverse um 
you know, backgrounds. It's, you know, yes, you might be a technologist, but for goodness sake, you know, don't just hang out with technologists. You yes. Know? Um, and um, in fact, you know, to be honest, I, I, I really, you know, probably shy away from, you know, strong sort of, uh, um, you know, job title orientated groups, you know, I, I just think you need to find, as I say, you need to find a, you need to assemble that network for yourself and, and find out what works for you. Um, yes. But, but keep on growing it and changing it and, you know, um, pruning it and, um, uh, and, and often, you know, and don't say no, you know, when people say, oh, you know, there's somebody I think you should, you know, me, you know say yes, you know, uh, what's mm -hmm. it going to cost you? It's, you know, uh, the number of kind of blind dates that I go on, you know, with people who just, I trust their judgment and they say, oh, well, there's somebody you should meet. And I really always say yes, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and if they're not the right person, you know, for you to connect with often, you know, they will connect you with somebody else. And, yes. But then you also have to give back. You have to do that for other people too. So you have to be prepared, you know, to reach out and introduce people. If your intuition tells you that actually they would, you know, something exciting would come out of that connection. So, um, you know, be on the receiving end of it, but also be a good introducer as well. Yeah, I love this. Um, final set of questions. So in terms of uh, me pretending to be a tech genie, right? I'm going to pretend to be a genie for a second and grant you a wish uh, from a, from your leadership perspective, from your technology market perspective, what would your wish be? Well, I, I do think it is really important, you know, going back to this kind of national level, I think it is really important that we, we create a big, long-term, you know, disruptive, vision um holistic vision for what for the for what a smart prosperous sustainable resilient equitable um fun to live in uk you know mm -hmm. would be let alone a planet and you know i think that that vision you know like all visions you know acts as the kind of the north star that you want to you know innovate towards that you know it helps you decide, you know, what moonshots you should fund, you know, mm. what research um, uh, you should fund, you know, what skills you should develop, um, you know, structures, institutions, so forth. So I, I, I think, you know, I think that that is really, really important. I, it's really, really hard to do, mm. uh, but I don't think it's something that we can, you know, duck um, because, uh, without it, you know, we, we don't really know, or we won't really know, you know, what it is we are trying to, you know, innovate towards. And of course, in forming that vision, we also have to take account of things like, you know, achieving our net zero and sustainable development goals. So it's not just about, you know, uh, you know, maximizing, you know, the sort of uh, the successes, you know, uh, you know, for, for, you know, for one particular country you know mm. we, we we are on this planet with others so i think um I, I think that vision is is the thing what is the thing ultimately is the thing i care about most and then of course it's about building the tools that can help us you know um assemble that vision um and um uh, you know creating the right kind of environment you know uh, in for which that happened and then of course you know, we've touched on education before. I think, 
you know, how we uh, invest, um, you know, in the evolution of our of our education system to make sure that it is, you know, generating the diverse talent um, uh, to, to to help you know implement that vision, but also uh, preparing you know um, uh, our citizens, you know, for of the next generation, you know, for for the you know for what that world will look like, and um, uh, and and I think you know um, if we if we embrace that and 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 uh, do it right, you know, um, I, I'm very optimistic about the future. Brilliant, I love that, Paul. It's been a great conversation. I think very. I'm looking forward to seeing some of these uh, digital twins coming online and, uh, and and running simulations and seeing how we can make the future a better place. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, that was a long podcast. Me and the team looked to see what we could take out, and we couldn't. We couldn't decide, so we left it all in. I think there's something useful for everyone in there. For me, the big one was digital twins, and now I am a fan. So in summary, the key takeaways for me from the podcast were the power of four potential technological advances converging in our time, being AI, ML, machine learning, digital twins, and Internet of Things. I really can see these blending together to create a huge impact on our abilities and our advances, particularly to save our planet from uh, our shenanigans. The second key takeaway for me was a big surprise, actually. Akada Limited is a company I didn't realise was actually a technology company. I thought they just delivered food, but it turns out that's just a thin veneer and a spin-off from their efforts. So it just shows you that there are organisations out there that are creating systems and ways of thinking and then using them to create businesses. I find that fascinating. A kind of industrial innovation machine. There you go, coined a term. If you hear it again, you heard it here first. My third key takeaways is how governments are getting involved in this. In the UK, working with the likes of Paul to create these digital twins for the nation to see where we can save money, save our planet, save our environments, improve education. So this is brilliant. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this evolves. And thank you again, Paul, for sharing your thoughts. I look forward to speaking to you again and seeing how these digital twins are growing up and maybe even celebrate their birthdays together. So thank you again, Paul. And before I go, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter. URLs for this can be found on this page. We're consistently creating material to create, support and nurture a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about our services at IT Labs, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders, favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. That's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a great day or evening wherever you are in the world from all of us at IT Labs. Live long and prosper until we meet again on the next podcast.